back 50,000 years ago used to be about six inches taller than they were after agriculture. So once agriculture occurred, humans lost about six inches of skeletal height. The brain size actually shrunk about 200 cc's to what we have now. So before it was about 1,500 cc's, now we're back down to 1,300 cc's. So our brains actually got smaller, hmm. our skeletons got smaller, our muscles got smaller, our bones got visibly weaker. And so we went from well-nourished, had plenty of food and plenty of animal fat too. Now we're kind of scraping by with lesser quality food. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Sean Baker, I'm so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. You are a multiple world record holder in multiple distances in rowing. Can I say former orthopedic surgeon? Is that... No, no. I'm still an orthopedic surgeon. Oh, you know, you're still so practicing? Well, I'm not actively practicing right now. I may go back later this year. Maybe I'll probably end up doing it part-time. I'm going to probably do that and then transition over to more of a lifestyle-based practice, you know, as, as sort of my situation allows. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm still considered an orthopod at heart. Orthopod. Yeah. Right. We met at Paleo FX, I think a month ago. We did. Gabriel. Gabriel. Yeah, uh, Gabriel Lyon. Lyon. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. So you were on this panel and there were, there was a vegan. Dr. Khan. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to use names. Two keto. And I have to say, you were like the fittest, most healthy, vibrant looking person on the stage. And I was like, oh, is this because of how he's feeding himself? Well, I mean, I want to just be fair because Gabrielle's sure. pregnant. And so she's, you know, <laughs> she's, she's always vibrant. Pregnant, that's so like a, does. that's a given. <laughs> well, you are too. I, I am. I know. Recall. I got the 10 week countdown going. But you've been on a carnivore, strict carnivore diet for how long now? 18 months? No, about two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. I started I started in late 2016. So it's 2019, about halfway through. So I've been, you know, right at two and a half years. And I feel like you you've kind of tried everything, right? You were vegetarian or like more plant-based. You, you yeah, yeah. Keto I mean, a little I, bit. You know, I didn't just start doing it for the heck of it one day. I mean, it was, you know, I, I there was a progression there and I you know, I mean, I, you know, like I said, I'm in my fifties now, so I've eaten all kinds of diets over the years. And, and most of it has been, you know, to fuel me for athletic performance. And I was eating, you know, what would most people would consider a reasonably healthy diet? I mean, it wasn't like perfectly, but it was, you know, it was focusing on, you know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean dairy. And, you know, that was what I ate for probably, you know, and, and quite a bit, you know, and to be honest, quite a bit of meat for about 40 years. I mean, that's what my diet was. And then when I got into my, my mid forties, despite very vigorous exercise, despite still being a very decent athlete, you know, a very high level athlete and still training very hard, health just started to deteriorate, you know, and as, and as a physician, I was like, you know, this is kind of stupid. So I had thought kind of all along, you know, as long as you are training hard, you can kind of, and you manage your calories, you can do whatever you want. You can eat whatever diet you want. And, you know, that, that worked till about it. 40 years and then it stopped working. And so then I had to apply, apply different strategies. And so I started out with what I thought was the right way to go, which was a low fat, very fiber rich, vegetable rich, kind of lean protein diet. And to be honest, I didn't lose weight. I got, I got, I lost about 50 pounds. And I was about, at that time I was about 200, 280, 285 pounds. And I was, I just won like the world championships and Highland games. And so those are big people, you know, and, and even at 6'5", 280, 290, I was one of the littler guys in the competition. Wow. <laughs> so 
uh, just to put the perspective, you know, we routinely yeah. running the guys were six, eight, you know, 330, 340 pounds. You know, when I went from 280, I dropped down to about 230 in about three months. I just dropped it. You know, it was pretty easy. I mean, I just knuckled down on the exercise, you know, jumped rope a couple thousand times in the morning, worked out over my lunch hour, got home, jumped rope again, cut my calories about in half, dropped the weight real quick got to where I wanted to be body composition wise. But then I just, I was like, I can't, I just can't sustain this for the rest of my life. There's no, <laughs> there's no possible <laughs> way that I can continue to do that. So then I, you know, I just started getting into like, I saw like Mark Sisson stuff and Rob Wolf stuff about the paleo diet. And then that looked interesting to me. And I got into that and did that for about a year or two. And as I started to delve more into, into nutrition and reading about it, some of the low carb st stuff started making sense to me. And so I tried that for a couple of years ended up doing a ketogenic diet for not two, two and a half years. And then right before I turned 50, kind of start, started playing with this carnivore thing. And, and, you know, I've been doing that since. And uh, I mean, literally everything just got better. I got better as an athlete. I got stronger. I got leaner. I mean, every, every meaningful metric to me that I would consider relevant clinically just got better. And that's where I'm at right now. And I'm, and I'm still doing very well. Yeah. I picture you a, a guy that trains really hard. I mean, Gabrielle has told me you are beast mode. Is that true? I've always trained with, with a lot of intensity and, you know, I, and I've had the fortune of training with uh, a lot of world champions in different sports. I've had the fortune of being very successful at a lot of different sports of different natures. I mean, whether it was when I was setting national records as a power lifter, you know, pulling almost 800 pounds in the deadlift as a drug free athlete, whether it was, you know, competing at high level at strongman, whether it was winning world championships in the Highland Games or throwing Masters All-American at track and field, and then finally on this indoor rowing where I've set a number of world records. I mean, I've trained with the Olympic champions. I've trained with the world champions. I've put the program in place. But yet you've got to, you've got to have a certain level of intensity to be effective. And so that's what I do. And I don't necessarily do a lot of training. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty – it's pretty sharp and to the, to the point. And I don't spend three hours in the gym. You know, some days it's, it might be as little as 15 minutes, but I mean, when I'm there, it's, it's usually pretty intense stuff. And yeah. So that's how I like to do it. Did you notice when you changed to a carnivore diet, you know, like some of us, when we train, we get a little bit of joint pain, we get a little muscle aches. Did that stuff start to change, go away? Once you yeah, absolutely. You know, as, as an orthopedic guy, I had suffered from right quadriceps tendonitis for, gosh, about a decade. And, you know, I, you know, you, you know, I tried all the sort of things I knew as an orthopedic surgeon to get that better. And it just kind of nagged on. And I just kind of accepted that was going to be with me for the rest of my life. And so probably about, I think, six to eight weeks into doing carnivore diet, I noticed that my tendonitis was gone. And I thought that was very interesting. And it, and it just continued to stay gone. <laughs> it hasn't been there for, for now two and a half years. And so that was something, and you know, I had other kind of minor aches and pains, you know, probably a little bit of knee pain, a little bit of shoulder pain. You imagine being doing all these really hard, you know, I played professional rugby when I was younger. So I, I, I put my body through some, through some trauma over the years and I had, you know, minor aches and pains. That's nothing I would consider to be devastating, but, and, and I just consider that's just part of the, part of the deal. And I mean, literally all that stuff went away. And so now I'm basically generally almost completely pain-free all the time which makes it easier to train. It makes it easier to want to train. You know, if you're in there and your knees hurt, it's hard to just, it's hard to feel like squatting when your knee hurts every time you go up and down. And so I don't have any of that. So that affords me a big advantage, you know, particularly in my peer groups, you know, when you get in your fifties and you don't hurt, you're, you're in a, you're in a kind of a unique subset of people when it comes to athletes. And so you've got a huge, yeah. 
huge advantage. And so yeah, Absolutely. that was one of the that was one of the one of the big things. I mean, like I said, there were a number of things, but that was one of the ones that I, I appreciated the most as an athlete. And for people who haven't heard of a carnivore diet, can you clarify? This is the way I like to define it. We put the focus on animal-based nutrition. And so that is the crux of the diet. Okay. And for many people, it just means that's it. I mean, it's pure animal-based, you know, you just eat meat, you drink water, you know, you might throw in things like dairy a little bit, not much eggs, seafood, things like that. Organ meats for some people that like to do that. I tend to say this is how I would view plants as things that are maybe nice for flavoring, you know, maybe nice for a little variety, but don't rely on them as a source of nutrition. And if you, if you change your focus to meat not being the condiment, which we're being taught, you know, meat should be a condiment. We should load a plate up with lots of grains and vegetables. I think that's the wrong way around it. I think meat is where our nutrition comes from is where historically our nutrition has come from is what has really turned us into human beings. You know, if you think about what are the essential requirements for human beings from a diet, and we have to get essential amino acids, essential fats, we have to get vitamins and minerals. All of those things are contained within an animal. You know, everything we need to be an animal is in within an animal. Things we do not need or are non-essential are things like fiber. I know a lot of people think it has benefits, but it's truly non-essential. Things like carbohydrates. We have no requirement for exogenous carbohydrates. Now they do have potential benefits, but they're not required. And then these things called phytochemicals, which some people like to call phytonutrients, they're really just chemicals, but we have really no actual requirement for any of these things. And so when you base your, your diet on, these are the essential things that humans need, these are the essential things that made humans human, then that changes the paradigm quite a bit. And you know, the, the, the plant stuff becomes kind of superfluous. I don't buy into the, you need to get antioxidants. You know, if you think about all these phytochemicals and phytonutrients and antioxidants, our body doesn't even absorb them very well at all. It has very little capacity to absorb these things in the first place. And what does get absorbed usually is just immediately detoxified. And so we get things like, you know, these things we hear about these polyphenols and sulforaphanes and tannins and all these chemicals that everybody talks about and they tout their healing powers. Well, what they do is because they're toxins, they basically upregulate our endogenous antioxidant systems uh, like NRF2, which leads to glutathione production. And because it has a toxic effect, it just makes us more resistant to that. Well, so does air pollution. Air pollution does the exact same thing as these sort of plant chemicals do. And so they're not really needed. They may, they probably confer some protective advantage to people that are eating, that continue to eat kind of a junky diet. You know, if you're, if you're eating a junky diet and, and there's a lot of garbage in our diet, whether it's seed oils or lots of sugar or highly refined grains and carbohydrates, having a ro more robust defense system is probably a benefit. But I think beyond that, it doesn't really help much. And so I don't think they add much to a carnivore diet beyond flavor. That's what I consider it for. So from an anthropologic background, like where do we go wrong, right? Because, you know, there was this hunter-gatherer. Now there's such a heavy focus, like you were saying, on like filling your plate with the grains and the greens and then the meat is aside. No, like where do, where, do, where do we go wrong? Well, I mean, we went wrong. Not that we went wrong. We did it out of necessity. I mean, what happened was, you know, if we look at, you know, if, if we if we use the evolutionary argument and we believe in evolution, I, and I realize there's people that don't don't believe that, but I think most of the most of the community out there believes in an evolutionary model. And so if we look at human beings, human beings started around 3 million years ago with 
arguably Homo habilis. And so they, they, they evolved from something called Australopithecus. <laughs> Australopithecus. So these guys started to probably scavenge for meat as they evolved into Homo erectus about 1.8 million years ago. Homo erectus became very adept at hunting. And so they, their, their sort of food of choice were these probsidians. And so probsidians are the animals with the big, long noses, which we would recognize today as elephants, mammoths, mastodons, and things like that. And so they were very effective at hunting these things. And so those guys, the Homo erectus took the human brain side, which started around 800 cc's, brought it up right around 1200 cc's. And remember, modern humans have about a 1300 cc brain. So they did most of the work to grow our brain size. And if we look at the animal records and what was available, these megafaunal animals were everywhere. I mean, they, they literally dominated the landscape and they were very easy to kill for Homo erectus. All they needed was a spear. They didn't even need a stone tip. They could do it with simple sharpened stick technology and they were very efficient at it. And it's even today we see that African tribes can easily take down an elephant, one or two guys. They're not hard to kill. Remember, elephants are used to being hunted by big cats as predators and, and they can't do anything once they reach a certain size. So then the elephants just kind of stand there and kind of look at them and say, what are you going to do? But he, because when they did that with humans, they didn't realize humans had had spear technology and projectile technology, so they became sitting ducks. This was especially true as humans migrated out of Africa and they got into Europe and Asia and Australia and then, of course, to North America because these animals were really naive. You know, these, these big elephants and stuff, they had never seen humans before. They didn't realize they were threats because they were so small. And so as we got so effective at hunting these animals, by around 50,000 years to 25,000 years ago, most of the megafaunal animals died off. And there's some argument that maybe some climate change had an impact on that. But I think most of the evidence points to wherever humans migrated to within a few thousand years, these megafaunal animals die and they're gone. And so if we look at, you know, at the beginning of the Pleistocene about 125,000 years ago, the average size for a mammal was about 500 kilograms or maybe more. So 500 kilograms. And we look at the average size for a mammal today and it's around eight kilograms. So we, that's how much animal food mass disappeared because of human overhunting and human selective targeting of those big animals. And so once those animals went away, we had a crisis of energy. And so now we have to figure out where are we going to get our food from? So then we take to hunting smaller animals. We can still get our protein requirements met by smaller animals, but it was very hard to get our fat requirements met. And so people had to resort to things like maybe eating more of the organs, maybe eating more of the, you know, the brains, the marrow more, and then ultimately turning more to plant-based nutrition because, and we arguably probably ate fruit all along, but it wasn't very, it wasn't always there. You know, you couldn't depend on raspberries growing in, you know, in Europe in January, there's not going to be there. So you can't rely on that. And so as we sort of ran out of these animals, we had to become more and more inventive about how to make plant foods more nutritious or more valuable. And so we learned how to process them appropriately. And then eventually we developed agriculture. And with that came, as many people are unaware, human beings back 50,000 years ago used to be about six inches taller than they were after agriculture. So once agriculture occurred, humans lost about six inches of skeletal height. Their brain size actually shrunk about 200 cc's to what we have now. So before it was about 1500 cc's. Now we're back down to 1300 cc's. So our brains actually got smaller. Hmm. Our skeletons got smaller. Our muscles got smaller. Our bones got visibly weaker. And so we went from well-nourished, had plenty of food and plenty of animal fat to now we're kind of scraping by with, you know, kind of lesser quality food. And, And basically plant, plant material is just basically lesser quality. It's not that you can't get nutrition out of it. It's just harder to do so. If you think about 
again, if we continue this evolutionary argument, we, we have uh, predecessors that kind of split apart from chimps and monkeys and gorillas went one way and we went the other way. But that common ancestor was eating a plant-based diet. And they failed to grow the brain that we grew. You know, monkeys today have been eating, you know, old world monkeys have been eating fruit for 25 million years. They still haven't grown a brain yet. You know, <laughs> I mean, they still have a tiny brain relative to us. So what made the difference was access to animal-based nutrition, being able to hunt, being able to effectively and easily obtain all that fat and that nutrition. If we look at the digestive anatomy, you know, it's interesting. Chimpanzees and gorillas, well, chimpanzees spend about 65% of their waking hours actually physically chewing because their nutrition is so inferior. Even if they're eating fruits and plants, it's so inferior that for them to extract the nutrition they need, they have to spend 65% of their waking hours literally chewing. Gorillas spend 80% of their waking hours chewing. Early humans, it's estimated based on the calculation they do with jaw structure, spend about 4% of their day chewing. You know, it kind of makes sense. You're eating a more nutrient-dense diet. You don't need to smell your day chewing. And so those are some of the anatomic differences that have evolved for what we do. And is the, for example, like the greens, like if we took a piece of broccoli, is there less nutritional value because the soil, the time it's picked to table, the processing of it? Because I picture when you look at a piece of broccoli, you're like, you're probably looking at it thinking, mm, I'm not going to get much nutritional value out of it. Yeah. Compared so, to let, a steak. Let, yeah. Let's just, you know, again, historically, you know, broccoli was cultivated around two, 3,000 years ago, I think in Southern Italy, I think is where it originated. It made it into Western Europe or Europe in general about 200 years ago. And it got to the United States, the United States in about 1920. So it's a novel food. We have not been eating broccoli. This thing did not exist prior to that. So that's one thing. If we look at broccoli, for instance, you know, people talk about, well, it's got some protein, you know, they compare it to hundred calories of broccoli versus hundred calories of steak. What they fail to, to indicate is how much volume of food that is. And so you'd have to eat, a, a, you know, broccoli about the size of your head to get the same amount of, of protein. And this isn't even bioavailable in the right amounts, but just crude protein as you would from a, not even a, a half palm sized piece of meat. So when we look at broccoli, we see that, you know, number one, it's got a lot of fiber. And so fiber is going to impede our ability to absorb a lot of nutrients, particularly minerals, things like calcium, things like magnesium, things like zinc, things, things like iron. It also has oxalates in there, which also do the same thing. They prevent the absorption of other minerals, particularly. And then also, when we look at the protein that comes in broccoli, if we look at crude protein, it's usually, usually based on nitrogen. So we have to look at what's actually available as actual amino acids. And so we see the numbers are even less, maybe 60% is less. And then we look at things like indispensable amino acids and things like leucine, lysine, things like that. Leucine is, is vital for, for us to synthesize muscle. The ratios are even worse. And so they're not even in the correct ratios that we would need. And so broccoli is, you know, multiple times inferior to something like, you know, like beef would be. So it's just a much less valuable food. Many people will find uh, that it causes a lot of digestive problems, you know, it's, and, and, and so there's, broccoli is one of the least things I'd want to eat. <laughs> Personally, it just doesn't taste very good. You know, the only way I find when I ate it, I used to, if you could smother it in enough butter and maybe put some bacon in there, it would, just wouldn't taste that bad. It'd be kind of like a vehicle for getting fats in you, but to, to, to right. sit down there and eat a raw piece of broccoli, it's, you know, it, it just doesn't do anything for it. It tastes awful. Yeah. So what about this idea that like we need a certain amount of fiber in our, in how we're eating? 
So fiber, yeah, that's interesting. So fiber, like I said, is not essential. I mean, you will not right. die if you don't get fiber. I, I'm not dead. I mean, despite some people <laughs> think I'm dead, but I'm not. So I'm still here. And there's people been doing this for 20 years and societies who've largely done this literally for thousands of years. You know, we can look at people like some of these Northern populations, you know, you know and some people argue, well, they got some berries here and there, but I mean, realistically, they weren't getting like lots of fiber. They're getting minimal fiber. The arguments that say that fiber are beneficial largely revolve around epidemiologic studies. And so they'll say that people eat fiber tend to have less heart disease, less cancer, less, you know, whatever they die, they die, die less commonly. But what, what it really shows is people that choose to eat a high fiber diet generally demonstrate healthier behaviors. And so what it does is it just basically selects out people that are healthy, that do other healthy things. And so we just have this healthy user bias. But when you actually clinically test fiber and randomized control trials, the results are not particularly compelling. They don't really particularly help much when it comes to things like prevention of cancer. They did the polyp prevention trial, which showed basically no effective added fiber to preventing recurrence of cancer. It does very little with regard to things like constipation, which a lot of people, in fact, there are studies out there that showing going completely eliminating fiber work for constipation. It does seem to mitigate blood glucose response. And most people argue that keeping your blood glucose from going super high is a good thing. That would be the analogy of if I eat an apple versus drinking a bunch of apple juice and seeing what happens to my blood glucose. The apple right. juice, the blood glucose will go higher. But you know, when you're eating a diet that doesn't have any fiber at all, like an all meat diet, that's not really an issue because your blood glucose is very stable in the first place. There's some thought that fiber does provide a sense of satiety. So if I if I pour a bunch of wood chips down your stomach, you're probably not going to eat that much. But I mean, it doesn't really provide much in the way of nutritional value. It may arguably lower cholesterol a little bit. So there's associations with that. But again, I think our knowledge about cholesterol is really changing. And I'm not convinced that that necessarily is a good thing for all people. So, um, I mean, that's another kind yeah, of another myth topic. I'd love to debunk is like, yeah. my mother-in-law tells me if I eat red yeah. meat, my cholesterol is going to go through the roof. Yeah, we'll go, we can go now. I'll finish up about fiber, but, but yeah. because there's another one. So the, the latest thing about fiber is they talk about the microbiome. And so they say that, you got to have fiber to feed these bacteria because these sort of fiber-loving bacteria will produce this short-chain fatty acid called butyrate. And butyrate will help the colonocytes to be healthy and create this mucosal barrier. And that's true. However, the interesting thing is there's something that occurs when you eat a low-carbohydrate or a ketogenic or a meat-based diet called ketone bodies. And ketone, one of the ketone bodies is known as beta-hydroxybutyrate, which circulates in our blood. Beta-hydroxybutyrate sounds a whole bunch like butyrate because basically it's just one easily convertible reaction away from becoming butyrate. And it does it and it reverses very easily. And so when you have beta-hydroxybutyrate in your bloodstream, that same beta-hydroxybutyrate gets to those colonocytes and then the butyrate aspect of it can do the same thing. And so it's not that you need the fiber, it's just that you need butyrate in whichever way you can get it. You can certainly get it on a low carbohydrate or a diet that, that promotes some level of ketosis. And so- right it's just an interesting fact that people sort of play it out is it's the only way you can get short chain fatty acids and butyrate is to eat fiber. Also certain amino acids actually will be broken down by, by bacteria into things like methyl butyrate, which again, arguably will also lead to butyrate production in the GI tract. So fiber is really not particularly all that is cracked out to be. I mean, I think more and more people are discovering that. And for many people, it actually causes problems. In fact, there was a study in 2012 that a gal by the name of, I think her name was Ann Peary, I think it was done in one of the journals of gastroenterology. She did a 2,000-person colonoscopy study. She stratified the uh, folks into four categories, and she found just 
just like uh, you know, perfect relationship. The more fiber you ate, the higher your your likelihood to have diverticulosis was. You know, mm. so it was just as fiber went up, we saw increasing rates of diverticulosis. And diverticulosis is for those that don't know is where the colon just has these little pouches that push out from it. And so what happens is little pouches occur and then little things get trapped in there. Typically seeds and things like that, parts of plant material will get trapped in there, get irritated, get infected. And then you have something called diverticulitis. And that means your colon is basically infected. It can be very painful. Often you need to have multiple rounds of antibiotics to get rid of that. Sometimes even results in the loss of the colon itself. And so maybe fiber is not the greatest thing in the world for everybody. Right, right. So let's touch on cholesterol because okay. I think there's there's a lot of red meat cholesterol myths that need to get debunked. Well, I mean, and this is this is obviously this is a, this is enough material for an entire podcast for totally. sure. Totally. But I think the short sort of you know summary of this is cholesterol. The main concern is that that we talk about we talk about cholesterol in terms of cardiovascular risk because most people in the world die of cardiovascular disease, at least in the Western world. You know, we used to die of infectious disease. Most people, you know, that was the top three killers were basically infectious diseases back, you know, a hundred years ago. Now it's, you know, it's cancer, heart disease, and neurodegenerative disease. But what drives cardiovascular disease is multifactorial. We can't just say it's one thing. And so what we're learning is it's age, it's gender, it's, you know, those things you can't control. It's smoking, you know, again, that that's controllable. And then it has, then all these other modifiable risk factors that are in there. And, and some of them include things like inflammation, vascular damage, hyperinsulinemia, you know, if you're, if you're metabolically sick or pre-diabetic or diabetic. And then we talk about LDL cholesterol as being, you know, loosely related to cardiovascular risk. We're finding out more and more that it's not just LDL cholesterol in general, but it's maybe a certain type of LDL cholesterol. It might be that it's oxidized LDL cholesterol or glycated LDL cholesterol or one particular particle you know, maybe it's the ApoB fragment, maybe it's the LP little a portion. So we, we, we're really trying to stratify what's actually causing the problem. But what we're seeing is because most of the Western population, the American population has some degree of metabolic disease. There was a recent study out there that showed it something like 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. Only 12% of us are considered metabolically healthy. So if you take all these metabolically unhealthy people that are having high levels of inflammation, they have poor glucose control or hyperinsulinemia, they have obesity, they have visceral body fat, and then you plug higher cholesterol into those people, then probably that's going to increase their risk for cardiovascular disease. But if you have a different subset of the population that doesn't have all those things, they don't have the inflammation, they don't have the vascular damage, they don't have the problems with blood glucose or, or hyperinsulinemia, then it's very likely that the LDL elevations are basically not doing much problematically. And we see that. We can see that if you stratify people by things like triglyceride HDL index ratio, if those things are favorable and we want our triglycerides to be very close to what our HDL is, you know, if a one-to-one ratio is, is really nice, then LDL can be very elevated. And we see very little increased risk. And so it's more nuanced than just everybody with high LDL is automatically at risk for cardiovascular disease. We have to be, we have to look beyond that, see what else is going on. Because in many cases, we see that LDL is actually protective. Remember, cholesterol is not, we don't make cholesterol for the express purpose of killing ourselves. I mean, we make it for many reasons. It's precursors for hormones. It's incorporated in every membrane. Our brain has 25% of the cholesterol in our body. Our steroid hormones, sex hormones, and other hormones 
all require cholesterol for their synthesis. Vitamin D, you know, all these things depend upon sufficient levels of cholesterol, our nerve function. You know, we see people with like multiple sclerosis. And we know in animal studies, if we do not have adequate exogenous cholesterol introduced in that system, they can't remyelinate nerve fibers. And so cholesterol is vitally important. If we look at some of the epidemiologic studies in older people, the higher the cholesterol is, the more likely they're to live longer, the more likely they're not to get cancer, the more likely not to get a neurodegenerative disease. So, I mean, you know, again, we're all going to die of something at some point, you know, and, and is it better to die of a heart attack at 90 or cancer at 75? And so we've got to say, where do you push the lever? Which way is your, your pleasure? I mean, I'd rather drop dead of a heart attack at 100 while doing deadlifts than, you know, spend 20 years having some neurodegenerative disease personally. So I think we have to, you know, we have to reframe cholesterol. Most physicians don't have time. They, they, they go in there, they do a quick, simple blood lipid panel, and they say, okay, your cholesterol is high. Let's put you on a statin. That's the end of the story. And unfortunately, that's not doing anyone any favors, quite honestly. Did you notice, because I feel like you're the perfect kind of lab specimen, did your own blood work change when you shifted to a carnivore diet? Yeah, as far as what I can remember, because I, for reasons that a lot of people don't like. I'm not all that excited about labs because I realize how much they change day to day, how fluctuate they, how much they fluctuate. But I do know, for instance, that my LDL, sorry, my LDL, my, my total cholesterol didn't really do much. They about stayed the same. I mean, they were slightly elevated. You know, my, my total cholesterol was around 200. My LDL was around 140, which is what it has always been my entire life. The thing that did change was my HDL went up about 25% and it was always fairly low and it went, you know, went higher. Went into the, it was in the 20s, went up into the 40s and my triglycerides dropped extremely low down to like 52, 53. And so those are all very favorable. I saw that my like C-reactive protein dropped down to nothing. It was 0.5 or 6 or something like that, very low. My liver function studies were normal. My kidney function studies were normal. My... Insulin was super low, had super low, so very good insulin sensitivity. My fasting glucose was a little bit on the higher side, which is a lot of, was surprising to a lot of people. But what we find out later is a lot of people that engage in very high-level athletic activities, high-intense athletes, we see that the Olympic athletes, we see it professional athletes, often will run higher blood glucose. And I think that's a physiological driver demand rather than the typical diabetic pathophysiology that we see. So that was a little, little bit interesting to yeah. delve into that stuff. Yeah. I had a coronary artery calcium scan, which is a, you know, a, a test of the heart. So that's a basically a CAT scan where they look at the blood vessels in the heart and they see if there's any calcification. And calcification means there's been damage to the heart. There's been atherosclerotic plaque that's accumulated. That's prognostic for the problems down the road. And so ideally you want a zero score, which means, you know, you've got no evidence of disease. And sure enough, I have a zero score. I went in and had that done about two years into the carnivore diet, you know, after been eating four or five pounds of red meat every day zero level of cardiac disease based on that study. And many people regard that as probably the best, you know, the best current marker, you know, that, that's widely available for cardiovascular risk projection. Yeah. Let's debunk another myth. What about this idea of like nutritional deficiencies that you're not getting everything you really need just from meat? Yeah. So this is an interesting question and an interesting topic. And I spent a lot of time, you know, discussing, looking up, reading, researching about this. And so if I were to say, you know, I'm going to put you on an animal-based diet and, you know, you were just to, to say, we're going to look at the RDAs and see what, what you would meet and what you'd be deficient in, you know, most people would say, well, you're going to be deficient, obviously, in vitamin C. 
you're going to probably run low on folate. You're going to run low on perhaps vitamin K, vitamin E, potassium might be a little low. Manganese might be a little low, or perhaps magnesium, um, calcium. You know, these are these are things you would say that you know potentially would be difficult to to do. Now you can very easily make up. You know, you can actually make that diet work if you were to say, I'm going to include organ meats. I'm going to have a little dairy. I'm going to have a little you know cheese. I'm going to have a little bit of fish. Then you can completely cover your bases, and you're not going to have any nutritional deficiencies as per the RDA. Now the problem is, the RDA is really just based upon expert opinion. It's not really hard randomized control site as to what the RDAs are actually based upon. And so 2007 Institute of Medicine conducted a meeting to review the RDAs. And basically the conclusion of that meeting was RDAs are based upon our lowest level evidence that we have, which is merely expert opinion. So we've got this sort of not particularly good framework to tell us what to eat. Now, you couple that with the fact that the RDAs were also developed on a population. And again, these are often population-based studies. They'll say, they'll say, they'll look at a big population, see who gets whatever, berry, berry, scurvy, pellagra, you know, one of these vitamin deficiencies and say, what were they eating and which people didn't? And then they would, you know, would set the number and say, you know, this is what the, people, the average population needs to eat to avoid these deficiencies. And the problem is the people that the diets are studying typically are grain-based, high-carbohydrate diets, which contain Again, we talked about this earlier, lots of anti-nutrient type foods. And so if you have a high fiber diet that's rich in things like phytic acid, rich in oxalates, then you're going to see that these nutrients are more difficult to absorb and they often come in the wrong forms. You know, if we look at the, the sort of the plant-based version of vitamin A, which is beta carotene, you know, we all hear about eating our carrots because it'll help our eyesight, right? Right. Right. Well, we actually use something called retinol. So retinol is the animal form of vitamin A. Many people cannot convert beta carotene into, into vitamin A very easily. And some people it's very inefficient. And so when we throw all these factors in, we're looking at, you know, people eating a plant-based diet have much higher requirements for vitamins and minerals than somebody who's not eating that way. And somebody's getting the actual forms that we need via animal-based nutrition. Somebody who's not ingesting all these sort of anti-nutrients to compete with the absorption like heme iron versus, you know, non-heme iron, same thing. Meat has heme iron, plants have non-heme iron. Heme iron is much more readily absorbed. So we have a very different scenario. It's kind of like, you know, trying to determine the, the, the gas mileage on a diesel car that you put gasoline in. You know, you're not putting the right fuel in, you know, you're not getting the right output. Additionally, you know, like the, the question is, you know, if, if the RDAs were correct, then I would long ago have died of scurvy. I mean, there's no way around that because I don't, I don't get the RDA even close to the RDA and vitamin C. Now, the misnomer is, or the misconception is that meat doesn't have any vitamin C, when actually it does. The USDA never really tested it. They put assumed to be zero, but actually there are studies done in other countries and older studies where they do show that meat has you know an amount of vitamin C. It's about 10 milligrams per, well, I can't remember, 100 grams perhaps, enough to, enough to prevent scurvy. Yeah. Um, but also we know that if you're on a high carbohydrate diet, your, your requirements go up magnesium is a cofactor in, in carbohydrate metabolism. So you require more magnesium if you're running carbs than if you're not. So that may very well be one of the reasons so many people are magnesium deficient is because they're just eating too many damn carbohydrates and their, their magnesium requirements are going up. And the same thing happens with vitamin C. We know that vitamin C will compete with glucose for a number of transporters. And so there's a number of glucose transporters that will uptake vitamin C across the mitochondrial membrane, across some of the... Uh, membranes in the digestive tract, some of the enterocytes. And so when we are competing with glucose with vitamin C or vitamin C with glucose, we, we have much less 
absorption of vitamin C. We also know that vitamin C, believe it or not, can be recycled on the red, red cell membrane. Red blood cell membrane has a capacity to kind of turn over vitamin C so we can continue to use that a little bit. We also know that vitamin C is utilized for the synthesis of carnitine, which is very important in fat oxidation inside the mitochondria, or around the mitochondria rather. And carnitine, believe it or not, is in red meat. That's what's called carnitine. It has that carna, you know, carny prefix in there. Yeah. So when, you, when you're taking in carnitine, and we do have transporters in our gut specifically for things like carnitine and carnosin, which is another meat-based uh, dipeptide, we have these transporters so we can directly take in those things. So again, our vitamin C requirements go down. Also vitamin C acts as an antioxidant. Well, when you're on a low carbohydrate diet, you naturally upregulate a lot of your antioxidants. Things like glutathione go up. So again, the vitamin C requirements go down. So I think the requirements just change and the RDA doesn't really hold up. And so I think that's why, you know, at the end of the day, we're not seeing anyone with any sort of overt vitamin deficiencies. I mean, no one literally, and there, there are now thousands upon thousands of people that are doing this diet, have done it for months and months and years and years and even decades. None of them have vitamin deficiencies. And, you know, the only thing we would see with the vitamin C stuff is back in the old day with the British soldiers, if you eat dried meats, you know, if you're eating canned meats or dried meats or living on something like beef jerky and you're on a high carbohydrate diet, then yes, you're likely to get something like scurvy. But beyond that, we're not seeing any real vitamin deficiencies. You know, the other thing is folate. We have to realize that about 80% of our folate is actually made by the microbiome. And so even though, you know, on paper you'd say, well, you're not getting enough folate. Well, guess what? Your body can, can manufacture folate through the microbiome. And in fact, I've seen that certain species of folate producing bacteria are upregulated when you go on a meat-based diet. And so we, we just see a greater expression of these diets. So we're not seeing anyone with vitamin deficiencies at this point. Now, again, I'm open-minded and, and, you know, we'll keep an eye out for that type of thing. And, you know, certainly if it's a problem, it's easily to remedy that sort of stuff. But, you know, and honestly, you know, we've had cultures for thousands of years that basically ate meat-based diets and none of them were having, you know, vitamin deficiencies of any, any clinical relevance. Now you contrast that to, many of these sort of third world countries where they're living on grain-based diets, plant-based diets, and they have all kinds of vitamin deficiencies. Yeah. Less on a physical level, but more on a global level. You know, a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, our greenhouse gases and our carbon emissions could be drastically reduced if, you know, we just had meatless Monday or went plant-based. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that is a a lot of wishful thinking, quite honestly. I mean, the reality of the matter is, you know, if we're worried about global greenhouse gases, then we really have to focus on fossil fuels. I mean, that is the absolute elephant in the room. And, you know, the people that want to distract this issue by saying, we're going to blame it on cows are misguided in a number of ways. And so, first of all, let's if we take the data as what we know it on face value, we know that, according to the FAO, that Animal agriculture worldwide contributes about 14% to the greenhouse gas emissions. And that's not small. I mean, 14% is, 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 not, is not nothing, but it's not, you know, there's still 86% of other stuff that's out there, right? Now, if we look at that 14%, that is a life cycle assessment. So that's everything that goes into cattle. It's not direct emissions. It's transportation. It's packaging. It's raising the crops to feed the cattle and, and the animals that are fed, you know, crops. It's everything that goes into that, right? If we look at just direct emissions, animal agriculture only represents about 5%, so it's much smaller. But and, and a lot of those life cycle assessments have not been done on these other things like transportation, some of the, some of the energy sectors, they don't really do the life cycle assessments. But 
Okay, let's just say 14% of the global greenhouse gases are liberated from animal agriculture. Most of that, about 80% of that 14% is coming from developing and third world countries. So places like Africa, some places, places like India, other parts of Asia, where there's a lot of poverty and they have very poor agricultural practices. Okay. So that's a different issue. So we have to say, what can those people do to, to mitigate that impact? Now, if we look at the United States, for instance, now the United States is per capita, the worst greenhouse gas country on the planet. I mean, we just put out the most greenhouse gases per capita. Now, China puts out the most overall, but they've got 1.4 billion people or whatever they have right now. But on a per capita basis, the United States, we, we lead the world in greenhouse gas emissions. But if we look at the United States for ourselves, and if, if, if the, this, the question was, what can I do as an American to cut back on my greenhouse gas emissions? And then I look at all the things that cause greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Cows contribute about 1.9%. So it's a very small amount, right? So if we look at the energy sector, it's about 25%. The, tr the transportation sector is about 27%. The fossil fuels or the industry sector is about 25%. So those are where our greenhouse gases are coming from in the United States. So for, for, if we were to do the calculations, and we, and we can make all of us in the United States completely vegan, none of us would eat meat again, not just meatless money, but meatless every day of the week, and we made all the animals at the same time magically disappear and all the pets, the cats and dogs and horses and everything, all these animals were to completely disappear from the face of the United States. The reduction in greenhouse gases worldwide would be 0.3%. So basically meaningless, nothing. Yeah. Right? So people will say, well, what about, you know, what about uh, the Amazon, right? They're cutting down trees in the Amazon. So that's another argument, but the greenhouse gas argument doesn't really hold up. If places like India, and you know, most of the Indian cattle herd is infected with parasites, and so they're very inefficient. They have these skinny cows that are eating, you know, wandering the streets, eating trash, you know, because they're, they're they're considered sacred, and that's a different issue. I mean, we got you know, we have to we have to realize that there are global issues, but there are very regional solutions for these global issues, and so you have to you have to tailor your solution to where the problems actually are. Now, if we talk about Amazon deforestation, and absolutely correct, we should not be doing that. We should mitigate, mitigate that, minimize it. If we look at animal agriculture in the United States, and not that it's perfect, and there's a lot of things we can do in the United States to improve it, but we have not seen deforestation in the United States. In fact, the forest cover in the United States and Europe has actually regained over the last 30 years and even over the last 100 years. It's, it's growing back. So we're getting more forest you know, in this part of the world. Now, in, in Brazil... You know they're cutting down the forest for a number of reasons. You know they're 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 using it because they need the wood. You know they're building. They're they cut. Why you cut down trees? Because you're going to use wood. But what they're doing is they're going behind after they cut the wood out of there. They're planting different crops. A lot of times they plant soybeans, and so some of that soybean crop is actually fed to the animals. And some people are saying well, we're using it to to feed the cows. Well, that's not actually true. What they're doing is they're growing. And if we look at Brazil, they grow about 120 million tons of soybeans a year. They export about 80 million of those tons, and most of that goes to China. And so what happens first is all of those, almost all of those soybeans are first extracted of soybean oil for guess who? For humans. So we first extract all the oil for the humans, and then when we're done with that, we take the leftovers, the stuff that the humans can't eat, the soy meal, the shoots, the, the stuff we're going to throw away, and then they feed it to livestock because livestock don't complain. They'll just eat whatever you feed them. So a lot of that, a lot of that soy meal will be given to pigs in China or chickens or some of the cattle, but it's not being directly grown for the express purpose of feeding these animals. It's just the fact that it's grown for human consumption. And then when we're done with that, it goes to these animals. You know, what we're seeing is 
2% of the world's crops are grown to feed animals for the express purpose of growing food for animals. Now, animals eat about 25% of the world's crops because the stuff that's grown for humans, a lot of it is not good. It's not grown well enough. It's considered not human quality. It, it turns out to where it just kind of fails quality control. And they take that junk that they're not going to use, they feed it to the animals, or they take the parts of the human food that we don't use and they feed it to the animals. The other option would be all this stuff would go in the landfills. Right. And what would happen to it? It would be sit there. It would be acted upon by bacteria, which would ferment and generate methane. And so it's not like this stuff would magically go away by not having animals there. Right. And this kind of speaks to a lot of the work that you're doing with ranchers in regenerative agriculture. Is that. This is something that, uh, there's another topic, you know, the environment is more than just greenhouse gases. I mean, there's a lot of issues. And one of the very important parts of that is our soil health, you know, and this is something a lot of, not a lot of people understand. I'm, and I honestly, I learn more about it all the time, but our soil is becoming depleted. You know, we've lost basically feet of topsoil, you know, back in the you know 1800s, there was like 10 feet of topsoil in the Midwest and that's dramatically dropped down and we've got, you know, maybe a few inches left or something like that, or a feet or a foot or two. And so as that soil gets depleted more and more, the re- reason that's done is because of, you know, tilling the land and then planting these, you know, these sort of row crops, these monocrops where you just spray herbicides and pesticides, you know, and you continually to do that. And that soil doesn't, can't recover and it needs animals to improve the soil. You know, animal, basically it's manure. The animals go in there and if they're well managed, and this is a thing. The animals have to be managed correctly. And guys like Joel Salatin and Gay Brown and you know Alan Savory, you know these guys talk about different management techniques. And so basically, if you have animals that are well pastured, where and that means basically they get in, they graze to a certain level for a day or two, and then they're moved immediately. And then that that area is and, and you know they go to the bathroom, they put their manure down, and then that area is allowed to recover for you know six months or a year. That builds the soil up. And so we're actually seeing like you know like I said Joel Salatin's farm he has increased the yield, the ability of the land to sustain animals by something like 600%. So he can, he can handle four or five, six times as many animals as a traditional rancher would on the same amount of land. And so that's how, you know, you can sort of regeneratively farm. And so what he does is in addition to cows, he has chickens that come behind uh, on the same land and turkeys and, you know, pigs while in pigs, and they all roam around and they do their thing and they interact with the, with the environment and that produces very robust, very healthy ecosystem is what the earth needs. And so instead of these massive giant soybean fields and massive giant corn fields and strawberry patches and these giant greenhouses that we see covering, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres across Spain, uh, which is basically just destroying land. The regenerative agriculture is really the only way we can return this land to its sort of native state. Do you think that every single person in the United States could eat meat and the land for the cattle, like there's enough land in the States to be able to feed? Is a carnivore diet like for everyone? Is it scalable? Yeah. Is so, it scalable? Yeah. Yeah. Is it scalable? You know, I don't think that, first of all, I don't think that every person needs to do this. I mean, I think there are certain people with certain health issues probably will benefit tremendously and that may be their lifelong dietary strategy. I'm not even sure that I need to do it. I do it because I'm, I'm learning, I'm testing, I'm, I'm pushing the envelope, you know, and I enjoy it and it, it works well for me. But 
What I would say is we have a tremendous capacity to increase our efficiency level, to utilize, you know, we have enough land to easily upscale our production numbers much higher than they are today. Again, that takes a lot of effort and willpower and buy-in to go into this sort of maybe regenerative type style. It might have to be a mixture of traditional agriculture where you have some amount of grain, you know, crop and you have some amount of cows, but you could certainly... So here's an estimation that I've seen that the entire world could be fed at, at current levels of meat consumption, including the 10 billion people that are projected worldwide with half the amount of cows we have today. You could absorb another 3 billion people, have half as many cows, and still eat as much meat as we're doing today if the rest of the world were to adopt efficiency standards with better breeding, better animal welfare, better nutrition, just better pasturing. That could be done. Now, whether people want to do it, you know, people might just say, well, we'd rather just eat fake meat and uh, go with that. So we certainly could significantly upregulate or upscale our capacity to do that. Now, I would say that probably if we were to double or triple our meat consumption, that's very easily doable, I think. I think it would be very healthy for us to do that from a human standpoint. And I think if we did it in a sustainable, regenerative way, it would actually benefit the planet, quite honestly. Yeah. What does your day of eating look like? Uh, (laughs) I know there's four pounds in there. Yeah, I mean, you know, most days. I I probably eat, that's pretty typical for me. I would say 95% of my days is, is two meals. I'll eat something in the morning and something kind of early evening. That's just what it is. It's more often than not, it's a couple steaks in the morning, a couple steaks in the afternoon, and, and that's it. You know, I might I might throw some eggs in once in a while. I might have some fish if I feel like it once in a while. Sometimes I'll put some seasoning on there. If I'm cooking for the family and they like a little more seasoning, I'll eat that. You know, sometimes I'll have a little dairy. I might have some, you know, some yogurt or something like that, Greek yogurt. That's I'd say that's it for about ninety-nine percent of my days. You know, it's pretty straightforward. Sounds boring, but I mean, I literally enjoy every single meal. I look forward to it. I'm, I've kind of become like my dogs. You know, when the meat's cooking, I'm salivating, you know, kind of dancing. I'm getting ready to eat my food. Most people consider it a very restrictive style of diet, but it's very liberating in the fact that I don't have to think about it. I don't even have to think about eating anymore. It's just like, you know, how hungry am I? How many steaks do I want? And that is really my only decision that I have to make. And so it's not this recipe planning and meticulously calculating macros and worrying about this and that. And you know, I just basically get to eat when I'm hungry. I eat till I'm satisfied and, and, and lather, rinse, repeat. That's basically all you got to do. Yeah, it's simple. What is your favorite cut of steak? I would have to say ribeyes are probably my favorite. I mean, just because of the fat content. And again, this I think this goes back to who we are as a species. I think we were big mastodon eating humans that, you know, thrived on fatty meat. And I think that's where it is. You know, you got to have any meat will get you protein, but to get enough fat to fuel what you need to do, whether it's, whether it's, you know, your daily activities, your brain power, your hormones, that additional amount of fat is very important. Now, you know, some people do better with even more fat. Some people do better with less, but I think the, the, the bottom line is here, you have to have adequate amounts of fat and that varies from person to person, time to time. You know, these people may arguably, some of them do better eating a little leaner for a while because they have their own internal stores of body fat. Some people that are, you know, highly active might have to eat a lot more fat just to, just to maintain their, their physiology. Yeah. How does the family eat? You have, you have five kids? 
Uh, yeah. So I, well, no, four, we're going to have, we're four. going to adopt one to get a fifth here in, in the near, hopefully not by next year. <laughs> so four kids, how do the four kids four, eat? Yeah. So my, my girlfriend is, and it was kind of interesting. She's from France. And when I met her, she was a vegetarian or reco- kind of, kind of pseudo recovering. She was just kind of at the <laughs> point where she was introducing a little bit of fish and always had like digestive problems and just was just like, Oh, everything. She said she was afraid to eat cause everything hurt her. Wow. And she went through the same journey with me and she was just like, you know, paleo and keto. And finally she is about, I'd say she's about 95% carnivore. And she's like, my stomach never bothers me anymore. I feel happy. Wow. She's very satisfied. She eats. I'm very proud of her because I remember the day she first ate a bite of hamburger. She was, she was okay on the fish for a while and a little bit of chicken. And it took her about two, three years to finally sort of get back to the red meat. And and now I'm just trying to get her to eat it a little, not so damn well done because she likes to ruin the steaks, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, but she's, she's, you know, she's getting it. She was doing the real thin cuts, real thin ones that you could cook. And now she's going a little bit thicker stuff. So I think I'm going to have her on these big juicy ribeyes in the near future. I mean, she'll eat some avocados every once in a while. She'll have, I think she likes some little hot sauce and she'll eat some cheese and stuff like that. But she's generally pretty much that way. My kids, my kids will eat carnivore days. They'll just, they'll just eat nothing but meat, but I don't, I don't like sort of force them to, what I do is I tell them, you guys need to eat some meat. I don't care. How, you know, you need to eat a decent amount every day. And then beyond that, if they want to eat something else, if they want to eat something that I, I tend, tend to keep it some kind of whole food, whether it's a lot of times it's fruit, they like fruit. I'll give them fruit. I don't see any problem with that for most people. You know, have a little bit of dairy. They may have, you know, some other nuts or something like that typically, they eat very little junk food. You know, there's once in a while they'll have some, I, I don't sit there and, you know, freak out, but they know, I mean, they, they know where they're nutritional and they really love it. Unfortunately, my daughters have gotten really good at figuring out where the best part of the steak is. So if I cook up a steak for myself, they'll start hovering around and say, daddy, we want that part right there. And I'm like, oh, man, I've created some monsters. So I end up just cooking, I'll cook a bunch of steaks so they all got our own, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the girls kind of funny. The girls are probably the biggest meat fans. I've got two boys, two girls, and the girls just love it more than anybody. Wow, it's just cool. Uh, did you did you notice a shift in mindset when you went to a carnivore diet? Yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, quite honestly, and you know, I think once you sort of reject the standard nutritional advice and you're willing to go out on a limb and say, "Wait a minute." I'm questioning what you've been telling me because I haven't been getting the results and I'm getting results with something else. And you see that repeatedly play out and you, you start to question, you start questioning a lot of things. And so I found that I'm very skeptical about a lot of the just common knowledge about things. You know, it's not like I'm saying the earth isn't round or it's flat or something like that, but I do sort of sit back and say, I don't, I'm not going to take everything without investigating. And I'm open to more things, you know, before you know, as a physician, I, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, I was, you know, very busy. You just kind of learn one way. And this is the way that, you know, everything looks like a nail. You hit it with your hammer. And, you know, now I, people would come to me and ask me about stuff. And I say, oh, that's much crazy, hokey stuff. I don't believe in that stuff. And so now I'm, I'm like, say, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's something there. Let's investigate. You know, maybe there's something to cold therapy or, you know, sauna or, you know, red light therapy, you know, I'm just more open to those things than I used to be. And I yeah. think that's, I think that's, you know, that's big, the biggest sort of mind change. And I've gotten, I guess, I don't know. I'm guessing I got a little more hostile. <laughs> 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 I've gotten where I don't care anymore. I'm just kind of like at the point yeah. where, you know, whatever. Yeah. Where can people find you? Cause you have this whole community of people who are sharing their transformation 
with you. Yeah. And it's yeah, so, so cool to see you share that. So where can people find you if they're looking for yeah, more? So I, I'm on all, I'm kind of a lot of places right now. So I'm fairly active on Instagram. And so my Instagram handle is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. On Twitter, I go by S Baker MD. I have a website called meatheels.com. So it's M-E-A-T-H-E-A-L-S.com, Meat Heels. We have hundreds of stories of people that have submitted their, I mean, literally life-changing, dramatic transformations for going on an animal-based diet. Uh, I've got my own podcast called the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. Myself and Zach Bitter, we host all kinds of neat people on there, and that's a fun one. I've got a YouTube channel. It's just Sean Baker. Just type in Sean Baker Carnivore on YouTube. You'll find it. I've got, I don't know. I put a Carnivore Training Systems, right? Carnivore Training Systems no. is just, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've done all this world-class sports over the years and I've kind of compiled together and cobbled together a system that kind of incorporates a little bit of everything that I felt is very effective for just general fitness and health as particularly, particularly going forward as, as, as we, you know, we just want to maintain health. And I think there's some important things and you have to kind of focus on all those things. Facebook, we've got the world carnivore tribe. We've got about 30,000 people on there all doing the carnivore thing and sharing their stories and sharing their successes and failures. And then Another thing we're about to launch, which I'm really excited about, is something called the AnimalBasedNutritionNetwork.com. And so the premise behind that is it's going to be kind of all-inclusive thing around promoting animal-based nutrition, but it's going to include like healthcare providers that are you know, willing or on board with the message that people can go to use to see if they need to, instead of you know going to their doctor and their doctor telling them to go eat more broccoli and, and take a statin, they can see <laughs> doctors that might have a different sort of outlook. And then I'm gonna. Then we've got these ranchers I've been talking about. Some of these regenerative ranchers or direct to consumer ranchers that want to support, you know, support the customers because I think it's very important. I think we're going to see more and more of these sort of big corporations like Tyson Foods and Cargills just sort of dominate the market like they already do, and then dictate what you get to eat. And it may be a lot of this plant based meat or this meat that's mixed with plant based meat or eventually this synthetic lab meat. So I think it's very important to maintain that relationship and build a relationship with, with between the consumers and the, and the ranchers themselves. We've got you know some health coaching and you know training online training stuff. We've got recipes. You know people wanted to know how to make the great steaks or roasts or whatever different animal products. We've got people that'll educate us about the environment, the ethical arguments. People in the political side that can tell us how to help us to in, enact policy that can kind of keep us able to do what we want to do so we're not dealing with meat taxes and restrictions and mandatory vegetarian days and having our kids being told they can't eat meat or you know that sort of stuff and then you know and so that's kind of what i'm excited about is that's coming to fruition hopefully very soon yeah so many cool things on the horizon thank you so much for sitting down i know personally when i'm not pregnant i eat mainly carnivore and i feel so much better regulates my blood sugar and you're doing such important work and sharing such an important message. Well, thanks for having me on, Emily. And yeah. hopefully your audience will, you know, at least look at it. And I think I'm totally crazy. <laughs> a lot of folks that, you know, it's kind of a funny story. Most people, when they, they first hear me, they're like, I thought that guy was so crazy. And then they'll say about a year later, like, wait a minute, he wasn't crazy. And it's worked really well for me. And I'm very happy. And so that's, you know, the thing for me is I get so much good feedback that it just makes it a pleasure to be able to kind of deal with some of the some of the nonsense that sometimes occurs when you go against the when you kind of go against the grain so yeah yeah and i think just personally you are when someone looks at you you look healthy you know what i mean like sometimes you look at people and they're they're recommending certain 
feeding or diet recommendations, you're like, "Eh, like you look a little inflamed or red or like puffy or you're holding, you know, fat weird in places. But, you know, when someone looks at you and you live and you breathe and you really use your body as kind of this self-experimentation, like you look healthy, fit, it's great to see. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps. It certainly helps when you can sort of show the results. I mean, at the end of the day, we all want results. And if, if you can't yeah. get results yourself, it becomes hard to get people to believe your message. And so that's one advantage I have, and, you know, in addition to being a you know physician, being an athlete, and in my 50s, still having a decent amount of muscle, yeah. on, I think I think is helpful. And again, I know we didn't really touch on this, but muscle mass is so incredibly important to maintain for our health, for, for longevity, for functionality. And I know Gabrielle and you guys are very much in favor of that. And I totally am on board with that. And I hope more people will understand that we got to maintain a good amount of lean muscle mass to stay healthy. Yeah. And part of that is pulling heavy weight, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, part of it, engaging the muscles, you know, it's, it's getting those muscles uh, maximally stimulated and there's a number of ways to do that, but heavy weights certainly are one very effective way to do that for sure. Cool. Thank you so much. It's been, it's like, like mind blown (laughs) with all the information. Hopefully, hopefully that, that's that all. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.